Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty. It's the students. It's the curriculum. It's the inspiration. Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Join host Dan Ray, BU Law alum and WBC 1030 radio host in Boston for this edition of the BU Law Podcast. And welcome to the Boston University Law School Podcast. I am Dan Ray. I'm also a graduate of Boston University Law School, an attorney and a longtime broadcast journalist here in Boston, both on WBZ Television and WBZ Radio. Right now, I have my own talk show Monday through Friday nights on WBZ Radio, which is 1030 a.m. on the dial called Nightside with Dan Ray. And we'd love to have you join us any night, Monday through Friday, from 8 to midnight East Coast time. Now, today on this edition of the Boston University Law School podcast, we're going to spotlight the Center for Death Penalty Litigation and their work with death row inmates. Joining me today is Kenneth J. Rose, class of 1981 from Boston University Law School, senior staff attorney at the Center for Death Penalty Litigation in North Carolina. Ken is one of the very few attorneys who have almost exclusively represented death row inmates during their entire career. As I mentioned, he graduated from Boston University Law School back in 1981, 30 years ago, and worked as a staff attorney at the Team Defense Project in Atlanta, Georgia, immediately upon graduation. In 1984, Ken moved to Mississippi, where he was the only attorney representing the state's death row inmates on a full-time basis. In 1989, he relocated to Durham, North Carolina, and has maintained a, he maintained a solo practice before becoming the executive director of the Center for Death Penalty Litigation. That's a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to representing individuals, capital defendants, and assisting attorneys representing people who have been charged or convicted in capital cases. Uh, Ken served as director of the CDPL for 10 years before stepping down in 2006 and remains now a staff attorney at CDPL. Welcome to um, the Legal Talk Network and the Boston University Law School um, podcast. Ken, how are you today? I'm doing great, Dan. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, very welcome. First of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about CDPL and how you actually got involved uh, in representing death row inmates for sounds as if nearly your entire career. I uh, CDPL is a nonprofit and has um, been a, in existence for about 15 years. We we directly represent death row inmates. We're appointed by Indigent Defense Services to represent persons who can't afford attorneys in capital trials and capital post-conviction cases. And we have uh, attorneys on our staff. We have social workers. We have investigators. Um, and we, we um, also assist other attorneys who are representing persons um, charged or convicted in capital cases. So we, we, um, we work just in North Carolina, and, and our mission is to um, assist attorneys, is to represent persons on death row, and also to work for, um, for reforms and justice in, in capital cases. Now, t- take us through the process, if you will, of how you determine which uh, inmates are represented. Uh, I'm sure that you probably have more people um, in need of your assistance than you're able to provide. That used to be true. There, there were, at, at one time in North Carolina, 25 to 35 persons sentenced to death every year. And of those persons, maybe 20 to 30 would have their cases affirmed on direct appeal. And we would have to represent some of those persons, but we couldn't possibly represent 
all of the persons. And generally, we did it without looking at the facts. We 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 did it when there was the biggest need. We at, occasionally we would tri- triage the cases so that if someone had an execution date and no one representing him, we would uh, intervene and 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 represent that person. And there is a book. Um, by a fellow named John Temple entitled The Last Lawyer of the Fight to Save Death Row Inmates that chronicles your 10-year battle to save a mentally challenged a farmhand by the name of Bo Jones from being executed. I know it's a complicated story, but can you give us sort of the, the skeletal of that case? Sure. Uh, Bo Jones was convicted and sentenced to die for the 1987 robbery murder of Lehman Grady, a Duplin County, North Carolina bootlegger. Uh, Mr. Grady's murder at his home and place of business in rural Kennensville, North Carolina, went unsolved for nearly six years. In 1988, one year after Mr. Grady's murder, a $5,000 reward was offered for information leading to an arrest and conviction in Mr. Grady's case, most of which was ultimately claimed by Bo Jones' former girlfriend, Lovely Lorden. Lovely Lorden implicated Bo Jones in the death of Lehman Grady more than three years after Mr. Grady's murder. At at that time, Ms. Lorden gave police a statement that suggested Bo Jones was guilty, but totally um, suggested that she was innocent. Her story changed drastically several months later in November 1990, when she revealed to police that she was in a car with Bo Jones and others and they allegedly stopped at Lehman Grady's house on the night of the victim's death. She says she remained outside the house and she heard gunshots. Bo Jones was not arrested until five years after the, after the murder, August of 1992. The state's case against Bo Jones depended exclusively upon Lovely Lorden's testimony. Ms. Lorden placed Bo Jones at the uh, at the scene of the shooting with a gun accompanied by herself and two co-defendants. Ms. Lorden has never claimed to have witnessed Mr. Gray's murder, but rather claimed to have been outside the house while the others went inside and to have heard gunshots. She denied hearing any plans by Levon Jones to rob or kill Lehman Grady prior to the killing. Prior to and during the time of her testimony, she was treated for mental illness, including auditory hallucinations, and that was a fact unknown to um, to defense attorneys at the time of trial, but known to the prosecution. Aside from the testimony of Ms. Lorden, the state presented no em- evidence implicating Levon Jones in the death of Lehman Grady. There was no physical evidence. There was no gun. Um, at the guilt-innocence phase of the trial, Mr. Jones testified that he had no involvement in the death of the victim, and um, the jury did lock for a while until the court instructed the jury that it was it, the jury's duty to do whatever you can to reach a verdict, and the, the jury returned a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder and uh, death sentence. In preparation for trial, defense counsel did almost no investigation um, we had t- timesheets from the trial counsel showing they did little work until one week prior to the trial, except trying to convince Bo Jones to accept the guilty plea, which he refused to do because he claimed during the entire time that he was innocent. Counsel failed to review discovery materials provided by the state, and they failed to interview the state's only witness, Lovely Lorden. Um, post-conviction discovery revealed 
that um, evidence that Levon Jones um, was not likely the person who did the crime. It, reviewed in, it, it revealed inconsistent statements by Lovely Lorden, and it revealed evidence suggesting that other sp- suspects may have committed the crime. So that's that's a summary of of the of what happened at trial and what happened in post conviction was that Bo Jones uh, lost his direct appeal, lost his first state post conviction, and an execution date was set uh, just uh, after his attorneys missed a deadline to file a, an appeal from the denial of his of his post conviction petition. So they missed the deadline, and, and there was no one to represent them. And at that time, I, I began to represent Bo Jones. So the, you began to take on his case um, approximately when? 19, when? In the 1990s? Yeah, approximately 1997. I began so how, how long did he sit on death row? Um, total about 12 years. And you were, through your work, um, were able uh to get the at least the death penalty overturned, as well as the underlying conviction, not only his death penalty, but his conviction, and and that came about because having lost through the state courts, a federal district court judge believed that Bo Jones did not commit the crime, and and um, looked at looked at the evidence against him and realized that Lovely Lorden was the only support for that conviction. Lovely Lorden testified in federal court. And and did so in a way that the judge was was able to to surmise that she was not believable. So I think the judge was convinced that he was innocent, but that is not the basis uh, for for the reversal because that was not a basis for for a claim in federal habeas. Right. That's Instead, that's the a, judge that's a reversed fact, yeah. the case on on uh, in, the ineffective assistance of counsel provided by Mr. Jones' trial attorneys. Right, so basically, the 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 state um, appeals are exhausted. You get into federal court, um, and and the judge gives you a reversal on ineffective assistance of counsel. The case retried. The case was not retried. So, um, the interest part of the interesting part of, of the story was that the prosecutor who originally looked uh, prosecuted this case was not convinced that Bo Jones was guilty. He was he wasn't sure he, that he was guilty and he knew he had very little evidence to support a conviction and he testified to that in federal court. So when the case came back he he made the 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 right decision not to reprosecute because he had no evidence and he knew that Lovely Lorden could not support a, a conviction. Mm-hmm. Lovely Lorden in turn um later recanted. She she gave an affidavit to the to the new trial attorneys um, saying that that Bo Jones had nothing to do with this, with and so this and so in this particular murder, no one was ever re, no one was re, doing no subsequent trials, and therefore no one today stands convicted for the death of this individual. No, that's not true, and that's part of the, the injustice in this case. What what happened um, before Bo Jones was convicted? His two co-defendants, Matthews and Lamb, were convicted. Um, Matthews pled guilty, and Larry Lamb went to trial on the exact same evidence that um, that was arrayed against uh, Bo Jones, and he was convicted. And Le- Matthew is, Matthews is out, um, and Larry Lamb is still in prison and has filed a post-conviction challenge to his conviction. But none of the three ever said that they, they um, uh, 
never admitted that they were involved in the crime. Matthews pled guilty only because he faced a death penalty. Okay, and so and so Matthews, who pled, his his plea has been vacated. I assumed if you said he's the one who's out, he was out, but he pled to second degree murder and he was out on parole. So I see. His, so he so he served some vacated. some period of time. He did. And and Lamb, who had been convicted, was his case then overturned as a consequence of the work you had done for Bo Jones. It was not, and his, there is a there is a petition pending that challenges his conviction in state court and has been pending for, for, I believe, over six months now. Okay, so he's still in prison uh, uh, waiting to exhaust his, his state appeals despite the fact that, a, that birth, it was a virtual I- identical prosecution that convicted him. Exactly, and, and, and um, despite the fact that there is no evidence um, right. that supports his conviction. All right, so, so at this point, uh, the, the irony here is that whoever did uh, kill this gentleman uh, no one has been, no one has been properly successfully brought to the bar of justice. That's exactly right. All right. Um, l- let me move on to the 2009 Racial Justice Act. Um, I, I know that much of the arguments against the death penalty uh, are based upon a feeling that the death penalty is is applied disproportionately. Want to tell us about the Racial Justice Act of 2009? Sure. There there are two um, cases that come to bear on, on the Racial Justice Act that, that influenced its passage. One is um, Batson versus Kentucky, which is about uh, the, the use of peremptory strikes in a discriminatory fashion in a particular case. Batson um, has been applied unevenly around the country, and North Carolina has hardly applied it at all to reverse any case. There has been one case in 25 years following the passage of Batson, Batson versus Kentucky, um, that reversed a, a, a conviction because of, of discriminatory use of peremptory strikes. Um, so there's been a, a, a serious problem of, of enforcement under that decision, um, which, which interprets the 14th Amendment. Then there's another case, McCleskey versus Kemp, that um, um, also interpreted the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and said that um, that Statistics could not be used to show race discrimination um, in in any criminal case, or certainly in any capital case. And since that time, there's been almost no cases, none that I'm aware of, in anywhere in the country where there's been a showing of race discrimination um, in the in the selection, prosecution of capital cases. that has caused a, a court to reverse those cases, other than jury race discrimination, jury selection. Um, so it's just it's it's been a total bar to uh, to claims of race discrimination. So the North Carolina legislature looked at this landscape and also looked at the fact that there were three exonerations of persons on death row, African Americans on death row, within three years prior to 2009 and realized that there may be a problem in terms of race discrimination um, in the application of North Carolina's death penalty. So it passed a statute that did three things. It allowed the use of statistics uh, to determine whether the prosecutors in seeking the death penalty um, were, were acting discriminatorily. It allowed the use of statistics to determine 
um, whether the race of the defendant was a factor, whether the race of the victim was a factor, and finally, it allows statistics um, to determine whether the prosecutors were using peremptory strikes in a racially discriminatory way. Um, the, the relief under this statute is life sentence without possibility of parole. So uh, that, is, that is the best that, that one can hope to get if, if they win under the Racial Justice Act. And yet that's a huge improvement over the, over the past law. And I think that the Racial Justice Act is a, um, it's a dramatic piece of legislation that, that for the first time allows this, this state, North Carolina, to come to grips with the, the history of race discrimination and the use of the death penalty. When you review your cases, um, what percentage of them you mentioned in the Bo Jones case, uh, clearly uh, ineffective assistance of counsel uh, was was the issue at, at federal court, but what percentage of the clients who you ultimately uh, represent um, do you believe were uh, misrepresented or represented inadequately uh, at trial? Um, I would say over half the cases I represent, and I am what the landscape was in North Carolina. We were we were prosecuting um, sixty to seventy capital murder cases every year during the nineteen nineties, and of those, um, twenty five to thirty five were sentenced to death, and it was just too many cases um, dumped on the system all at once. And at that time, judges had the power to appoint attorneys, and, and the attorneys would be paid slightly more. So um, attorneys generally wanted to be appointed in capital cases, notwithstanding their qualifications. And there was no systematic um, requirement of qualifications in capital cases during the 1990s. So um, we were seeing a vast amount of, mis- of, of ineffectiveness in, in those cases. Um, without standards, without any way of enforcing um, consistent representation. And those are the cases of people that um, that we're currently representing, mostly from the 1990s. Ken, we, we need to take a quick break here. Uh, there are some uh, issues that we want to get to uh, on the other side of our break. Um, f- fascinating um, commentary that you're providing us with, and we'll have more with my guest Ken Rose uh, right after this quick message. Located in Boston and steeped in 138 years of rich tradition, BU Law is number one in teaching quality according to Leiter Law School rankings and number three in the nation for best professors according to Princeton Review. BU Law, admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872 and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. Now back to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray, a lawyer, a veteran Boston broadcast journalist, and BU Law alum. And um, welcome back to this edition of the Boston University School of Law podcast. I'm Dan Ray. My guest today is Ken Rose. He's a senior staff attorney for the Center for Death Penalty Litigation in North Carolina. And Ken, again, you've spent a lot of time, an entire career on on some of these issues. 
Uh, as I understand that, I'm not an expert in North Carolina law at all, but apparently uh, North Carolina has introduced uh, the Indigent Defense Services Commission in that state. Uh, has that made a difference? It has made a huge difference. The Indigent Defense Services um, Commission is an independent commission with an independent board that is created by the North Carolina State Legislature and funded by the legislature. And the, the Indigent Defense Services Commission has the power of appointment in capital cases. It has the power to appoint experts and investigators and also set standards for those cases. So the the changes in North Carolina have been dramatic. And in particular, in capital cases, um, we used to sentence 25 to 35 people to death every year. And now that number is, ranges from two to five people every year, um, which in my view is too many, but it is has been a huge drop and one of the major factors for that job has been the creation of the Indigent Defense Services Commission. Well, l- let me be very clear because this is always a, a difficult part of the conversation. You are opposed to use of the death penalty on a number of grounds, and under no circumstances would you like to see anyone uh, put to death, however uh, clear uh, the proof is of their guilt uh, and however heinous or aggravating the circumstances are in the crime. You are an absolute opponent of the death penalty. That's right, and I, okay. and, and my reason for that is, is I've watched this for 30 years. I've realized that you can't protect innocent people and um, from the death penalty. You can't devise a system that's foolproof, and you can't eliminate racism, and you can't eliminate the problems with with bad attorneys and prosecutorial misconduct. If I believed you could eliminate all that, I would would possibly change my mind, but I don't think it can happen. Okay, fair enough. Um, Now, DNA has had a um, tremendous impact in the last few years, uh, but it is a two-edged sword because there have been, although there have been many, many cases where individuals' innocence uh, in the Barry Shack's Innocence Project, uh, DNA proves innocence. Uh, DNA can also prove guilt. Um, I assume that on balance, uh, the the revolution in DNA has probably helped more than hurt your fight for justice. Yeah, I don't I don't see it as a two edged sword. I see it as as very positive. I think that it it helps convict convict the persons who are guilty, and it helps free the innocent. And I think that the the problem is that in in um, the majority of the cases, we don't have biological testing, um, biological evidence that can be tested um, in a way that DNA can prove the per- who did the crime. So I think I think the figure that I've heard is 20 to 25 percent of the cases have biological evidence that can be tested, but in the remaining uh, 75 to 80 percent of the cases, we don't have that kind of evidence. Um, North Carolina uh, is uh, one of the um 35 states that still has the death penalty. Illinois recently um, got rid of the death penalty. I think Connecticut is, is moving in that direction as well. Um, I assume that uh, that North Carolina will probably be holding on to the death penalty a lot longer than, uh, than, than most states. Or do you feel that there's some way that um, you, could, you could make an impact and, and get the death penalty eliminated in the state of North Carolina? Yeah, I think that there is no bill... Um that has been introduced this session to abolish the death penalty. However, we have not had executions in this state for five years. There has been um, there, there has been a, a halt to executions because of problems with lethal injection and, and the adoption of a protocol. 
before executions. And the real concern, I think, for the legislature and for all the legislatures is um, how expensive is is this going to be and whether it's worth the price that we're paying. And even assuming, and I think most people uh, feel that the death penalty is not a deterrent, but even assuming that it were a deterrent, the question is, if, can you take that extra money that you're spending on the death penalty and use it uh, to prevent crime in a more effective way? And I think the answer is obviously yes. We are spending, for example, in North Carolina, we're spending $11 million a year just on defense services extra um, than, than it would cost to have a life sentence without possibility of parole. So the, the costs are enormous. I just want to finish up with a couple of um, uh, quick questions, if I could, because we are getting tight on time. Um, you've now been working with death row inmates for 30 years. Um, how has your work with death row inmates impacted your everyday life? Um, well, it, it has been st- very stressful at times, and it, it has taken a toll, um, particularly during times when I've had clients executed. Um, on the other hand, I think it's made me more sensitive to um, and and more concerning about people's frailties and and my own included. And um, I'm more apt to 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 think about people making mistakes and thinking that they aren't necessarily the worst thing that they ever did. Um, I look at my clients and think about their crimes, but I know some of my clients could get out of prison tomorrow and live, live a good and productive life. Others, not not so. But, have you um, have you ever um, been convinced of the innocence of a client who was executed? Of, of one of my clients? Not of one of my clients, no. Right. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and then um, I, I, I'd like, I'm sure that there are folks listening to us today um, who uh, would like to get more information from you, uh, or maybe even get involved with the Center for Death Penalty Lit- Litigation. How can uh, someone reach you? Our um, n- our number is nine one nine nine five six nine five four five. They can reach us by email. My email is ken k e n at cdpl dot org. All right, uh, and um, I really appreciate the time uh, that you've spent. Um, perhaps we'll get together on my radio show some night and uh, and have a really spirited discussion and, and incorporate a studio audience, uh, or I should say our, 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 our radio audience. But I think a lot of people uh, will benefit from from your comments uh, during our conversation today. I appreciate very much uh, your time uh, with us today, Ken. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Stan. I enjoyed it. Thank, thanks very much. So a special thanks to Attorney Ken Rose. Uh, and if you want to get in touch, uh, you know how to get in touch with him in North Carolina. You can find all the editions of the Boston University Law School podcast on the Legal Talk Network, also at the Boston University Law School website, as well as iTunes. Until uh, we next meet, I'm Dan Ray. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day, everyone, everywhere. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law.